what I can do is uh, give my passion, show my passion, uh, and teach other field biologists into gaining skills to be able to, at least on, yeah, my perspective is we need to know stuff. We need to get that data. We need to know what's understanding, what's going on with our populations in order to be able to protect them better. That's, that's what I can do. That's what I can help with and then uh, provide future, future conservationists that are gonna keep that battle going. This episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Tidal Influence, a Californian ecological consulting firm who proudly supports environmental education and all of the diverse conservation efforts that Pelicanus works to highlight. Visit their website at tidalinfluence.com to learn more about what they do to conserve our coastal resources and how you can get involved. On today's episode of Conservation Conversations, we talk with Matt Schrett of Toucan Ridge Ecology and Education Society. TREES is a small grassroots ecological conservation organization hosting a research and education center in the hills of Belize. The TREES Field Station and Research and Education Center functions as a wildlife ecology research and education center focusing on tropical ecology research and post-secondary education. Matt and his partner started the Toucan Ridge Bird Observatory, a research banding station aimed at answering questions about the birds of Belize and migratory birds of the Americas. Check out their social media pages linked in the episode description to see more of what they do. Enjoy our conversation with Matt. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself, let everyone know who you are and, and, uh, and who you work for, I guess. My name is Matthew Shred. Um, I'm a Canadian wildlife biologist. So started uh, doing my undergrad in Montreal at uh, McGill and then um, in wildlife biology. And then my master's on seabirds on terns um, in New Brunswick at the University of New Brunswick, Frederick. Things then kind of changed, let me more to more work in the tropics. And then from there, uh, was starting to do more land bird work, land bird conservation. So I was working on uh, king vulture in Mexico in the Yucatan Peninsula. And then from there, I kind of started a tropical, uh, tropical environment, tropical ecosystems and the species there. And that kind of got me into it a little bit more. And then that led me to meeting uh, Vanessa. I was wanting to start a field station. And I kind of knew that Central America was where I wanted to do uh, further my research and uh, and do more conservation work there. I think every wildlife biologist I've, I've met from Canada somehow ends up in the tropics. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a couple of friends that have decided to do Arctic work, but most of us have all went down to the tropics at least for a while. And I'm the one that stayed a little longer, but uh, yeah, now I'm moving back to BC and uh, yeah, the cold part is definitely a little challenging. And it's not even cold on the West Coast. Yeah, so uh, you, you talked about uh, you and Vanessa setting up uh, an ecological research station. Uh, we, we visited, we talked with Vanessa, and uh, you know, we got to learn all about trees. But can you kind of talk about what trees is and how it came to be and you know, where you guys are thinking about taking it? Yeah, so in my work in Mexico, it was uh, part of it was to was working on a PhD. So I did two years of that uh, at the university in the 
in Quebec, and then um, that didn't really pan out for different reasons. And uh, from there, I was kind of left uh, not knowing at all my next step. And then had met Vanessa. I went to visit my parents in BC. And from there, uh, Vanessa was working here at the time and she was getting tired of her, of her job, um, which was turning a lot into uh, office work. So she was tired of that and we went for a walk one day and uh, I, we don't remember who said, who said it, but one of us said, hey, let's start a field station. <laughs> and then from there we build it up and two weeks later we wanted a plane to check out properties in Belize and, and make it work. So it just like happened extremely quick. And I think three months later we had both packed up our apartments, all of our stuff was in cargo ship to coming coming down to Belize and we were we were setting up. Um, in retrospect, I would have done things differently. <laughs> Vanessa had been to Belize twice, had spent uh, two internships there, was very uh, familiar with, uh, with the country and, uh, and everything else. I, um, I wasn't really, well, I had never been except for those two weeks that we went for a visit and there it was really like a, a two week tropical vacation. It wasn't really through the mind of, uh, business and collaboration and getting materials and, and all that stuff so now we have uh, yeah all of those cabins can take up the 60 students we've managed to um i'll talk about that more but start a whole bird monitoring um so we have a, a new section now two trees which is kind of the bird conservation section which is the toucan ridge bird observatory um where we do monitoring um, of bird, long-term monitoring of birds through um, transects, uh, point count surveys, and uh, we're a banding station um, for doing the long-term monitoring of bats and then also of uh, small mammals and stuff. So we have that one component, then we have the whole farm component as well. And then uh, through working a lot with our community and the needs in Belize, we've noticed that there's a lot of need for um, youth development, um, giving Belize youth opportunities. Um, and so that turned into kind of a third component of trees now as well. Um, and they all work really, really nicely together. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. What's cool for me was being there and seeing this place, you're like, oh, this is cool. I like this. I have this is a cool setup. I like all the cabins. I like, you know, all the people that are working here. But then when you, I, the longer I was there and the more I talked to Vanessa and then now you, the more I, I kind of was able to like have that perspective, like, whoa, this was nothing. And now it's something. And it's just so cool. The fact that, you know, 10 years, you guys built all these cabins, you employ all these local people and it's all for the sake of conservation. And it's in such a perfect area. It's right up, up, uh, up against the edge of the, I can't remember the name of it. You can tell me, but the uh, uh, national park there, it's like a perfect little uh, conservation area. There's, as you said, there's farms. So it's like a, a way to be productive while also conserving this, the habitat and the species. You kind of mentioned already, and uh, it's one of the next thing I have on my list to talk about is uh, the Toucan Ridge Bird Observatory. So again, one of the things that you, that you created, and it's just, 
you know, so cool. And it's such in a perfect spot, not only in Belize, but in the, the uh, migratory corridor for everything on the West coast of the U S and Canada. Uh, it's just a perfect spot to have a field station. So can you talk about um, how you guys set that up and what the goals are for that program? Yeah. So TRBO actually is becoming, becoming quite big. Uh, we're getting a good name for ourselves in bird conservation. I'm I'm really pleased in how and how it's uh, it's evolving. It started off really by me wanting to do bird work, so I created my own bird work at the station. Um, I had some ideas of of questions I had and stuff, but uh, for the first couple of years, we just set up I think like eight to ten nets in the orchard at different places, and then started kind of collecting data. And uh, so then eventually we've started offering quite a few of their workshops at the station um, that just happened by chance. And now we're at our 10th workshop um, this year. We're offering one this spring and then another one in the fall. Um, then I be, the, while offering those workshops, I took them as well. So, so was uh, took my assistant and my bander and then my trainer. So became trainer uh, two years ago. But as I was doing that, the station was getting bigger. And then I started putting more nets out, starting getting interns coming down for the spring and the fall migration. Um, and that was partly, well, the main reason for that was to be able to collect data, but while still making some, a bit of money while doing it, because we were not getting any external funds for that. But by doing that, um, we just started training a lot of people. I think now we're, we've trained over 50 or 60 bird interns, some from North America and Europe, but also uh, quite a few. Um, well, on top of that 50, probably another like 35, 40 um, trained from Belize and, um, and other Caribbean islands and stuff and other places in, in Central America, like Costa Rica. And so we're trying to be a, a hub for training, uh, not just for North Americans, but for Caribbean and, and uh, Latin Americans as well. And then offering all of those NEBC workshops, what I've noticed is that uh, bird vendors from all around North America would start joining these workshops or were training these workshops. And so then that allowed me to have a huge network of, I know people from uh, most North American banding stations. So that puts me in a, a, a particularly a, a different spot than others where they'll go to a station and they'll just meet people. I kind of know like a wide range of it. And everybody now, even through the Canadian uh, bird banding lab, we're kind of known as the hub that's where North Americans will come down and meet and work together. And so it's really neat how it's doing that. It's a, a great place for exchange of information, exchange of knowledge on bird conservation issues in North America, but also here. And then it's uh, linking people up, different uh, organizations and stuff by meeting each other then have promoted to work have uh, started working together and and started their own projects that have nothing to do with us anymore but it it uh 
I'd say it's pretty uh, pretty cool what it's doing for for bird conservation. Yeah, I, I would I would agree, obviously, um, but. I think for sake of uh, just kind of sharing knowledge and, you know, we don't really know who listens to this or watches this, there could be like eighth graders. So uh, would you mind just kind of like talking a bit about bird banding? Because people are like, well, what does that even mean? I don't even know what you mean by banding. <laughs> um, so kind of talk about what it is that you're doing with it and, you know, what kind of data are you taking and how does it help the larger conservation effort? Absolutely. <clears throat> So bird banding is, uh, it's one way of monitoring birds. Uh, what it essentially just means is us putting a band on a bird. Um, so there's different capture methods that different, depending what bird you're studying or what group of birds and stuff. Uh, we specialize in uh, songbirds, passerines. And so we use these things called mist nets. Um, so they're, they are really thin nets with uh, meshing that will come in different sizes, but our typical one that we use is a 12 meters long uh, by about 10 feet high. So it's attached on two poles. And then uh, they'll be put in specific areas where we know that there's bird movement. Um, so we'll cut a lane either in the orchard between some trees or uh, a little strip in the forest so birds don't know that it's there they fly through in a net and uh, they fall in they can fall on one side of the net or the other um, and then we're trained uh, to extract those birds and after that you take your bird you put it in a special bird bag uh, tie it up and then we bring it back to the station the bird banding station so it's essentially just a covered table and then at that table we have our data sheets, our guidebooks, and uh, some measuring equipment. First step is always to ID our bird, and that's the thing. Some of the birds look quite similar. We make sure that we know the ID, and then we put a metal alloy band on it that is specific to that bird. We use two types of bands at the station. So we have a band for the resident birds, and then we have a band for the North American birds, and that goes into a database uh, in Canada and the U.S. of all of the North American birds banded. So all the birds that migrate to Belize will put those North American bands on it. <clears throat> and so it's really easy for if somebody catches that bird in North America, uh, they'll be able to take the number of that bird, put it in a website, and it's going to give them all the information on it, where it was banded, and that kind of stuff. So bird banding is, is used extensively. Um, Right now in the world, it's uh, has a it's one of the ways that we can gather a lot of information about birds uh, with relatively low uh, effort or impact. And so, information we're going to gather from birds is well. The first one is longevity. So uh, you catch a bird, <clears throat> you put a ban on a bird, and then say we catch it eleven years later. Well, we know now that in the wild, that species can live at least 11 years. So all these are all wild animals. They're not in zoos. There's uh, no way really to, to know how long they're going to live. So that is one of the big things. Um, establishing migra migration routes. So we catch a bird at one field station, say a field station at 
McGill in, in Quebec. And then I catch that same bird in Belize. Well, I know that that's its migratory route now is going from A to B. And then once we have the bird in hand, then we could also look at body condition. We typically, we don't do too many measurements uh, for the birds. Uh, we usually try to keep our measurements or handling time really quick. So we will, uh, we measure wing, we measure uh, weight, and then we'll look also at the fat content that the bird has on, on him. So kind of a, an idea of body condition um, of that bird. And then we'll also look, especially for the resident birds, uh, we have different cues that are gonna tell us if it's breeding or not. So it's actually impossible to really know in the field their breeding season, unless we were going around and finding all of the nests. There's different things, features that the birds will have when they're breeding that when we have them in hand, we can detect that. So that's something else now we're, we're looking, currently looking into their data and establishing breeding times for a ton of resident birds. So a lot of it is to gather kind of basic, basic data on it. Field stations typically uh, in, in the world, but in North America um, will not only be, it's not just a biologist thing. Um, a lot of stations, the headbanders often will be biologists, but they run a lot on volunteers. And so it could be kids, uh, well, it can be anybody, retired people as well that just on weekends want to go help their local bird banding station and they'll learn the skills and, and will become bird banders or any other part of the bird banding experience, which is either entering data or extracting the birds. Um, but there's kind of a bird banding culture out there that's, that's not really related to, to just biology. And it's uh, yeah, just regular people helping out and uh, and helping in the conservation effort. It's one of it's one of my favorite things that I that I have done and do in in my jobs. It's it's just so cool because you know coming up, I, I knew my birds okay, but I didn't really, especially like you said, the passerines, passerines. Uh, I didn't really know them that well until I started doing the, the, the mist netting. And then when you get them in hand, you really start to pick up on the little things, the little differences. And then obviously it's much harder where they're sticking in a bush and they, you know, they don't sit still for more than half a second. So I kind of went at it backwards where I started, like, I, I know so many birds by sight, but I'm now still trying to learn them by song. <laughs> and that's here in Southern California, where we have a, we have a pretty good diversity, especially in the spring but I can't even imagine what it's like trying to figure out what it is, the sex, the age, and all the stuff you have to do for the, the diversity you have in Belize. And so I can imagine that in Belize, it's just so much more complex. <laughs> and you're also figuring things out as you go. Like you're actually learning things about the diversity of Belize, which I think is just so cool. That's one of the most exciting things of the, of the job right now is that um, looking doing some uh, searches online for some of these birds. There's like maybe one publication like on it for the whole species. There's like nothing. So we're just discovering things for the first time. And a lot of these birds, um, very exciting. Um, and in order to, to establish proper, um, 
conservation plans, we need to know more about just the basic biology of these birds. So for us, it's been really, really fun. And for uh, Belizeans as well that are turning into biologists and stuff to know more about their, their, their birds um, has been quite the experience. And um, I keep telling my students, uh, a lot of them think that everything has been studied, everything has been looked at. Uh, you know, there's nothing new they could bring to the table and it's like, oh no, there are so many species, at least for birds, we know most of the species, but still there are some we don't, but in terms of other wildlife and insects and plants and everything that there's a ton that we don't know. And as we're kind of going through a bit of an extinction period right now, it's, uh, I feel like there's a bit of a push for us to understand what, what we have before it's too late and how all of those spokes come together to hold that that wheel up i think the coolest part is that the you guys are getting local belizeans believe how do you know how to say belizean <laughs> uh, the the local uh community involved because for so long the the trend is just white north american european males coming in saying here's the birds you have and you know thanks for showing me <laughs> and then now you guys are able to kind of you know, flip that on its head and get the local people involved. And I, you know, I assume, I presume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, when you retire, when you move on, you hope to turn this over to Belizeans and to say, hey, this is your field station and this is your conservation effort and this is a local thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that That is the idea. And so for us, it's making a team of, of Belizean bird benders and then working with other NGOs to actually create the Belize Bird Banding Lab, um, which then I'm, I'm, we're just trying to help out and getting it organized, but not leading it or directed in any way to have it then completely Belizean. We want to get away from that model that you, you were talking about. So we make sure that we share data with other NGOs, with the Forestry Department of Belize, um, and even just having publications. And if uh, wherever we can, we uh, get Belizeans to collaborate with us in those publications. When I was talking about changes um, with COVID, that's one of them is, okay, we have 10 years of data now, let's get this out. There's no point in having this data just on our, um, in our offices. And if something happens, well, the station will keep happening, but if Vanessa and I move on and other people do it, we really wanna make sure that that data, then information is out there. So others, people, others can build on it. Um, so, and that, so that's the capacity building component of, of trees. So that we're doing for birds, but we're also have been doing it for, for bats, uh, small mammals and other things is really kind of promote Belizean biologists, Belizean naturalists um, to be able to, to further their careers and really become um, strong educated conservationists. Well, I think that speaks to probably my favorite thing about trees is that it's that sense of discovery and it, it speaks to conservation and, and, you know, interest in nature in general. Um, 
but it's that Belize is such a special place, especially along the Hummingbird Highway is just so it's an incredible spot. And, you know, there's definitely other folks down there. There's definitely conservationists. We definitely spoke to some of them and there's more, plenty more down there, but it's never enough. It's, it's few and far between the people that care about that land in a very special way. And to have you guys there, to have your conservation station there in such an incredible spot um, allows for that sense of discovery and allows for us to ask these kinds of questions about what is going on? What kind of trends do we have? What kinds of uh, uh, species, what, what kinds of assumptions do we have that we're going to challenge? And uh, it means a lot for somebody like me that isn't a biologist that can go down um, and that is a conservationist and is really interested in these things, but isn't a biologist. And, you know, when I'm uh, waking up one morning, having my tea and a howler monkey screams and yells all the way through. And, I'm, you know, it sounds like a mix between uh, a T-Rex and a squealing pig um, yelling and screaming. <laughs> and I'm going, what the hell is this? <laughs> Um, it just allows for that sense of discovery. So that's, I think, my favorite part about what trees can offer to um, conservation in general, but also that area of Belize. Yeah, and I would add to that, to Belize, but what I've realized, so in, in Belize, it's just beautifully located between reserves and stuff, but it's also one of the pieces in the last, last uh, little while that, government and a lot of NGOs have been working together to form uh, the Belize Biological Corridor, which kind of extends from a big chunk of Belize, linking all these conservation areas together, providing wildlife, uh, especially the big megafauna, um, like the jaguar, uh, safe, safe passage to go move around and not have huge like ag fields in the middle where they can't get through. And so trees is part of that biological corridor, which is really neat. But then, and even bigger than that, is um, that we're all part of this kind of region called the Selva Maya. Um, and so I find that that's important for people to know more, not just conservationists and biologists, but everybody is that we have this region that links up uh, Mexico, Guatemala, and Belize all together to form uh, this region called the Selva Maya, which is after the Amazon, the biggest forested tropical forest in the Americas. Like it's huge. And so everybody talks about Amazon. Sure, yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> but we have something in, North America's backyard and right here in Central America that is amazing for all Latin American countries. Like we should really, uh, for anybody that has a chance to go in any of these three countries and see part of the Selva Maya, if you go up uh, in Tikal in Guatemala and you go up to one of their big, big temples there. And as far as you can see, Around you. It's just like an ocean of forest as far as you can see. That's really calming. Uh, it's not the end of the world yet. 
<laughs> you know, uh, it, yeah, it's being, it's being deforested and, uh, it has its issues, but that's, that's the point is that it's still there. And while we're talking about constantly about other places in the world that need to be conserved, I feel like this place needs more attention, eventually turning into biosphere reserve or other things that would increase its conservation status. Uh, but while we're talking a lot about potential effects on climate change and stuff of deforestation, saving or maintaining the Selvania is, I think, crucial. And so I've been, we've been trying to push that more really at trees is not really seeing us just in this point now, but seeing us in this, this really large, uh, huge biodiversity zone um, that is still really well quite healthy um, so yeah to, so it's really starting from small Belize corridor and then to this this big beautiful jungle out there you know one of the things that we're also trying to I don't know talk about and highlight is why why we're still doing it <laughs> you know because you know even we're you know we talked to nikki from the belize bird rescue and she you know that was one of the questions i asked her was you know okay i understand why you started this and how you you know built it but why are you still doing this like and she's just like i don't even know anymore <laughs> like it's just so hard and so you know for me you know this is again this is speaking from experience where like either working with certain people or for different organizations where you just kind of get jaded and frustrated and you know, like, what is it that keeps you going? What is it that keeps you in this field to, to, you know, like, again, cause you could, you could make that transition anytime you wanted, but you're still out there, you know, still looking at birds, still conserving the birds of Belize and still training people. Uh, you know, what is it that gives you that, that drive, that hope to kind of keep, keep it going. Reading the news. That's great. Yeah. So much bad news all the time on how it's, uh, everything's going down and uh if it's true or not doesn't matter but that just drives me hearing about extinction extinction rates going up hearing everything that uh, with climate change biodiversity loss to me it just heightens my sense of urgency um i'm limited on what i can do of course uh if i was a billionaire i'd buy gigantic chunks of land and and protect them and find ways of uh, making sustainable economic decisions with with uh, the villages and stuff but since I can't do that what I can do is uh, give my passion show my passion uh, and teach other field biologists and to gaining skills to be able to at least on yeah my perspective is we need to know stuff. We need to get that data. We need to know what's understanding what's going on with our populations in order to be able to protect them better. And a lot of Central America, Caribbean and other places, things are still intact, but there's a lot of outside pressure to develop, to, to deforest, to put, uh, to get, uh, beef operations, cattle operations going, and uh, the threat is there. And so I think that 
yeah, for me, it's it just teaching. That's that's what I can do. That's what I can help with, and then uh, provide future future conservationists that are going to keep that battle going and try to stay positive. If uh, yeah, if you look at too much news, it looks like it's it's uh, really dire. It's the end of the world. But I I actually feel very positive. Like I said, we obviously have had our hard days and like, what did we do? <laughs> like, I, mean, I make a joke a lot with Vanessa, like, <clears throat> like as if her, her voice going, hey, let's start a field station. And I I'm like, oh yeah, sure. Let's just start a field station. You know, for us, it was just like, great, great. Let's jump in. And then the daily grind of it and the difficulties that, that we've had either with, uh, yeah, just getting funds in, proper funds in, getting salaries, getting the right staff, and and uh, a lot of difficulties that we've we've come along the way. Sometimes we've definitely questioned why, um, and do we continue going? And the answers are pretty much always, yeah, we're going to keep going. Yeah, along those those same lines, um, you know, what can what can we do, uh, you know, Taylor and I, but also just anyone listening, watching, what, what can we do to, to get involved with trees, to, to help uh, with the, the bird observatory, with any of the research, any of the work you guys do, any of the, the community work? Okay, that's a multi-tiered question. There's a lot of things people can do, uh, which is great. Uh, the most basic one that people are interested in is that we do have a Toucan Club membership where we tell people everything that we've been doing through that year and uh, the money is put back to our conservation programs, but as well, and then we plant a mahogany tree for uh, every person, every new membership. Um, so that's kind of the basic one, but also um, just coming down to the station, either uh, look up our stuff we offer a variety of workshops and activities so invite people to come down to the station and just see how it operates uh even for for general tourists that want to stay for a week or more they can come down and then while we're offering our activities they're welcome to come and visit bird banding and visit bats or, or bat work and things like that so just coming to the station, that's always uh, revenue, of course. Um, at bigger uh, levels, uh, shortly we're having, uh, well, we can always donate. We have a nice donate button on our website. But even at basic level, looking at our social media page and sharing our information to others, uh, it's getting the message out there. And it's not just about the station, but uh, the, the CRBO um, site, especially the Instagram account. I think we're close to 5,000 uh, followers. And uh, that's just bird pictures where I, I explain uh, molt of, of local birds and the biology of local birds and, and kind of the conservation status of them. So there's no human pictures. There's nothing about the station there. It's really just fun bird stuff. Well, we're always kind of looking for... Uh, volunteers kind of from home so people that have skills in uh, writing writing articles getting things like uh, you're doing being on podcasts being on uh, radio shows newspaper articles so people that 
can facilitate that or if somebody has come to the station loved it and wants to write an article somewhere that's we're always encouraging people to do that so it puts out the message of the station but really more about uh, tropical conservation the more people read the more people are going to get into it awesome yeah I, I for one i can't wait to get back i loved it there i really next time we go we'll have to go during the uh the migratory season just because we kind of got at the very end of it got a, you know for me it was awesome because i a lot of new birds for me but a lot of cool stuff regardless um but yeah definitely want to get back down there maybe when it's not as hot uh <laughs> But no, it's such a cool place, and we're you know we're really excited to, to to talk with you and and highlight you what you and Vanessa have put together. And I think between the two episodes, I think we've got a really really cool cool story. And you know the just seeing the bats and the birds in hand is like that's like like we talked about. That's that's as cool as it gets in, in conservation. So yeah, thank you again for so much of a of your time, and we really appreciate you you talking with us. Thank you. It's great to be on your show. And uh, yeah, keep going the show. It's it's talking about all the different conservation projects out there and people putting themselves out there. That, that's how I think change can be made. So thank you. Thank you again to Matt and everyone at Trees. Check out their website and social media to learn more about them, visit or get involved. Hosts and producers for this episode are Austin and Taylor Parker. Music was provided by a picture book studios. Please like comment and subscribe to our page. If you haven't already, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.